it is my pleasure to welcome back Spec as the presenting sponsor of Fraudology this quarter. Stay tuned for more information and updates on their product capabilities, or click the link in the episode description to request your personal demo of Spec's TrustCloud platform. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's both unbelievable and believable that we're now officially in the second half of 2023. I feel like time always moves faster than I do, and so do fraudsters. But, you know, we do the very best we can. And I know that during the summer, a lot of you are on vacation or taking holidays. And especially this week is a shorter week in the U.S., Due to a holiday, actually in Canada as well. I know it was Canada Day on Saturday, so a lot of people had Monday off. But we're just going to have one episode of Fraudology this week and then go back to our regular two-episode format next week. And uh, we already have a really good interview already recorded, and I'll actually tell you a little bit about that later on because one of the stories that I'm going to share today leads up to that. But I just want to say whether you are on vacation now or you will be, I know that the summer is so busy, but we know that fraud never sleeps and fraud never takes a vacation. So why would Carice or Fraudology? I'm kidding. I do have some vacation time later, actually, officially, I think in October, but I'm going to take a little bit in August as well. A little different when you work for yourself since there's not really anyone else to fill in for me, but we're going to keep the episodes going. So, you know, whether you are on vacation and you catch up on neurology episodes when you get back in the office or you miss a couple and then you come back, however you want to do it is fine. Just want to let you know what to expect for the rest of the summer. And I do know that a few of you like to listen to this around your family, possibly on vacations. And to that, I apologize to your partners or your family, but also hope that they you know, learn a lot at the same time and maybe learn a lot about what you're into and what you do and how ultimately you protect users and companies from bad guys on the internet. Or as my three and a half year old daughter thought for a while that I caught frogs. And that was long before the Discover Card Fraud Frog commercial. But she really, really wanted to see it. And I was so confused. Anyway, like I said, there's just one episode this week. And so the Fraud News episode two weeks ago was pretty popular. So I decided to do that again and highlight more fraud news this week. So the first story was one that was shared by Erin West, who will be a guest on the podcast very soon. I am in awe of her. She is a prosecutor for... Santa Clara County in California and has really taken up the mantle of educating people and businesses on the impacts of pig butchering and all types of crypto crimes that are crypto investment crimes that are targeting scammers. But this also has to do with the master manipulators that we talked about back in November and how we more than suspected, you know, had a little bit of evidence, but it's hard to know and it's things across the world that these were a lot of the triangulation sales were placed by modern day slavery, people that are were in modern day slavery and may have been human trafficked. So I think that's an interesting story. The title is 2,700 people tricked into working for cybercrime syndicates and they were rescued in the Philippines. So it has a good happy ending, but there's also some really good information in there that I think will be valuable for anyone who is dealing with any of 
the crimes that we suspect are coming out of Southeast Asia and possibly from those groups. Or sometimes, unfortunately, they're referred to as human bot farms. That's a little less personal than what it really is. But that's if you're impacted by those, that's what we'll talk about. And then we've known that fake accounts have been a problem for years, fake accounts online, especially when investors value businesses based on the number of accounts in total and not the number of verified accounts. This is a drum I feel like I've been beating for years and years because quite honestly, a lot of you have said the same thing and that that's really the biggest challenge for you when seeing fake accounts coming on is that one part of the business says, hey, don't stop those accounts from being open. We need them for our valuation. So the headline on that article is Unicorn Social Media App IRL to shut down after admitting that 95% of its users were fake. So we'll go into that a little bit more. I mean, there is a difference between the company knowing that 95% of their accounts are fake and, you know, not knowing it and just hoping that they're real, but there's still a lot of that. And then we're also going to talk about a new type of COVID relief fraud in the U.S. That's, yeah, Frank McKenna is calling it COVID fraud 2.0. And I think that's a good word. And there's going to be a lot of businesses unsuspecting victims, either whether they're businesses or individuals in the next few years as the IRS tries to sort this out. So the title from Frank McKenna's article is COVID fraud 2.0. Check out the new fraud money grab. So yeah, like I said, there's always fraud news and there are things to learn whether it impacts your business now or not. So I will be diving into those three stories in just a minute. Before that, I do have two quick notes. So one is, especially if you listened to the two episodes last week, you know that the Fraudology Benchmarking Report is out into the world and it has been a really good, huge hit. And it's such a sigh of relief for me. This project has been a real labor of love for Shoshana and I, and we still cannot thank Forder enough for sponsoring the survey and all that that entailed. And it's now available to download without having to enter any of your contact information. That was something that was important to Forder. They wanted this to be something that would really help the fraud industry. And they wanted to show that they don't want to ask anything of the fraud industry. Obviously, if you're interested and want to learn more about their solution, you can absolutely contact them and get on their mailing list. But they don't want that to be the reason why you don't see the report or anything like that. So it is available. I will put a link to it in the show notes. I cannot thank everyone who has sent me a little note or shared the link to the report on LinkedIn and tagged me or indefinitely include Shoshana in those two because she did a lot of the heavy lifting as well. Even more so, she really kept me on track. And that is a full-time job in itself sometimes. Even though she's half a world away, that woman knows how to keep me on track and I appreciate it. That was a big reason why I wanted her on this project because I have a habit, especially since being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, and I know I've shared that before, sometimes I really just focus on whatever's right in front of my face. So a long-term project like that, it can be a challenge, but I just, yeah. I'm so grateful that this is already helping so many of you. Speaking of Frank McKenna, Frank on Fraud blog, he just posted about it this week on Monday, saying it was one of the best fraud reports he's ever seen, which is such a compliment because he's seen a lot and he's been in fraud for longer than I have. So once again, that was created for the merchant community, knowing that that's something that was needed and hopefully can really help you all tactically from making business decisions to communicating to your leadership. And as we know from survey results, communicating to your leadership and the rest of your business about fraud and the impact of fraud to your business is the number one thing that leads to 
fraud teams feeling appreciated. So we're really hoping this becomes an annual report and, you know, that Forder will sponsor it again this year or next year, I should say. If you're finding it interesting or if there's anything that you have questions about or you wish we would have asked something, I mean, Mr. Shauna said last week, we did start with 100 questions and we really wanted to ask them all. So chances are what you would want to know is kind of on the cutting room floor, but it's helpful to know more about, you know, if more people are asking for one specific question, then we know it's important to leave it in. I also know a couple of people on the banking side that would really like to see biology banking benchmarking report. I'm pretty honest that I, I feel like I know a fair amount about banking fraud, but I don't know it as well as those of you that have been in it so long. So I think it's worth having a couple conversations with people. We'd need to find the right sponsor company. And I'm very picky about that, as I've shared, for lots of reasons. Honestly, because I've been involved in surveys that were sponsored by, I don't want to say the wrong company, but companies who wanted to have a lot of control in what was asked. And ultimately, you can tell, right, as fraud fighters, when you're interests aren't in those questions and when they're not being asked what you need. And you can tell when you're being asked those questions, so you won't want to answer. And you can tell them when you're reading the report. But I just wanted to say that that is something that some people want. If that's something that you really are excited about, let me know. I think there might be a little working group being created. I can't help a ton on that, but I certainly can provide lessons learned and everything else. And kind of a template and we can see where that goes. Okay. And then speaking of the survey, I do have one correction to make. And this is like face palm time. That is one of my most used emojis that and like the shruggy face and usually the eye roll too, depending on who I'm talking to. But anyway, math is not my strong suit. And while I am very aware of what a basis point is, it is one one hundredth of a percent. So basically 0.01% or 0.0001. I think what I did on the calculator in trying to figure out what's the basis point for $10 billion, I just did times 0.01 and I forgot to do the percentage sign. So I apologize. A hundredth of a percentage point of 10 billion is not 100 million. That would be a tenth of a percentage point. Instead, it is, it's $1 million. So if you're a $10 billion company, then one basis point is a million dollars. But I mean, I guess I know why I did it, but I know it is absolutely possible to reduce your chargebacks by multiple tenths of percentage points and increase your acceptance rate by multiple tenths of a percentage point. So I think that's why it's hard for me to calculate in one one hundredth for one basis point because I'm this is not me doing my own consultant horn. It's just I know that there's so much opportunity for so many people. So I'm often thinking in tenth of percentage, not a hundredth of a percentage. But for being technical, that is a basis point. We need to correct that in the survey and that will be corrected in the next few days on the on the website. Obviously, if you printed it or downloaded it already, it may not be corrected. And then also in, I think I mentioned it in the, one of the False Positive Trilogy episodes and then also again with Shoshana last week. So you know, what's funny, though, is only one person has mentioned that to me. And there were several people that proofread the report and everything else. So I feel a little better about it, that it wasn't something that everyone caught. But at the same time, accuracy is so important to me, as I know it is to everyone in the fraud prevention world. So I wanted to clarify that. But now let's get into the news. I feel like there should be like, bum, bum, bum. I don't know, some news chime or something. <laughs> hmm, maybe I need to talk to my editors about that. Maybe we need a fraud news sound. Anyway, it is a short week and holiday week. So bear with me, guys. I'm a little extra silly, I think. But, you know, sometimes we need that levity, right? Otherwise, 
fighting frog can be can be hard on us sometimes and especially for how many of us deal with depression and anxiety and ADHD I don't know sometimes we do it to ourselves but by being in this industry but it's about so much more and we know that okay I'm starting out with the saddest story first but it also does have a happy ending in this specific story anyway so the headline being that 2,700 people were tricked into working for cyber crime syndicates but they're they were rescued in the Philippines. So I should say 2,700 people were rescued in the Philippines that were tricked into working for cybercrime syndicates. The headline kind of sounds like there were only 2,700 people that were tricked into working for cybercrime syndicates. And unfortunately, we know that that's just not true. So it happened in Manila, Philippines, Tuesday, the 27th of June, so last Tuesday. And the article says that Philippine police, backed by commandos, staged a massive raid on Tuesday, the 27th of June, and said they rescued more than 2,700 workers from China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, and more than a dozen other countries who were allegedly swindled into working for fraudulent online gaming sites and other cybercrime groups. The number of human trafficking victims rescued from seven buildings in Las Pinas City in metropolitan Manila and the scale of the nighttime police raid were the largest so far this year and indicated how the Philippines has become a key base of operations for cybercrime syndicates. Cybercrime scams have become a major issue in Asia, with reports of people from the region and beyond being lured into taking jobs in countries like strife-torn Myanmar and Cambodia. However, many of these workers find themselves trapped in virtual slavery and forced to participate in scams targeting people over the internet. In May, leaders from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations agreed in a summit in Indonesia to tighten border controls and law enforcement and to broaden public education to fight criminal syndicates that traffic workers to other nations where they are made to participate in online fraud. In this specific raid, the Philippine police rescued about 1,500 Filipinos and about 1,200 foreigners from at least 17 countries, including about 600 Chinese, 183 Vietnamese, 137 Indonesians, 134 Malaysians, and 81 Thais. There were also a few people from Myanmar, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, Nigeria, and Taiwan. It is not immediately clear how many suspected leaders of the syndicate were arrested. Police raided another suspected cybercrime base at the Clark Freeport in a province north of Manila in May, where they took custody of nearly 1,400 Filipino and foreign workers who were allegedly forced to carry out cyber and cryptocurrency scams, police said. I bolded this because I think this next part is really important and helpful information for us. Some of the workers told investigators that when they tried to quit, they were forced to pay a hefty amount for unclear reasons or they feared they would be sold to other syndicates, police said, adding that workers were also forced to pay fines for perceived infractions at work. Workers were lured with high salary offers and ideal working conditions in Facebook advertisements, but later found out the promises were a ruse, officials. Indonesian minister, well, I'll just say the Indonesian minister, I don't want to get his name wrong and I apologize for that, who deals with political, legal, and, okay, Ivan, I'm just going to go back. <laughs> Sorry about that. The Indonesian minister, who deals with political, legal, and security issues, told reporters in May that Indonesia and other countries in the region have found it difficult to work with Myanmar on cybercrime and its victims. He said ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, needs to make progress on a long-proposed regional extradition treaty that would help authorities prosecute offenders more rapidly and prevent a further escalation in cybercrime. So that is the article. There will obviously be a link to that in the show notes. But Basically, this is kind of a combination of things that we've talked about over the last, 
I would say eight months or so. It started out with the master manipulators, knowing that there had been a couple of really good reports, one of them from ProPublica. I can't remember who did the other one, but I know they were linked in those episodes talking about how, unfortunately, post-COVID, there's been a really big shift in human trafficking. There's always been human trafficking for forced labor and modern-day slavery, but there's also been a shift from the sex trade and from drug mules and smuggling drugs and other things to modern-day slavery to focus on cybercrime. There's different types of cybercrime that different crime syndicates are really specializing in. A lot of times they are insular, so we're not going to see a lot of buzz about what they're doing on any dark web forums, Telegram, Discord, anything like that. They're insular where they have the hackers getting the data and they have very smart people who are training these modern day slaves, I guess. I don't know any other way to say it, who are trapped and who can't leave, how to do basic level things. And I read in one of the reports that they're essentially a lot like the slave trade in the early years of the U.S. and other Western nations where prices for these slaves are based on their skills, their knowledge of the English language, because they are often targeting citizens in the U.S. as well as the U.K. and a few other parts of Europe, but primarily I would say the U.S. and then the U.K. and then other parts. But they're also basing it on if they can type or anything like that. And then they're trained and they're living in bad conditions. There's been a few very brave people who have shared their accounts of what happened and, and where they stayed and things like that in those reports I mentioned. And it's just it's really, really sad. But, you know, it the truth is that a lot of organized crime syndicates around the world, but for being honest, especially in Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, as well as some parts of Latin America are really going hard on cybercrime and they know that they can make a lot more money than they ever could smuggling drugs. And it's a lot less risky. Unfortunately, I had Raul Aguilar from Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. and Dave Smith from the U.S. Secret Service on the podcast several months ago. And they're doing the best they can and they know other federal law enforcement is too. But the truth is they are they're spread thin and they often have to prioritize violent crimes and those that are putting human life in danger. And so unfortunately, right now that's leading to so many crimes targeting civilians and U.S. citizens that are vulnerable and who don't know that this how to spot a fake crypto scam or anything like that. The biggest ones that really focus on this beyond triangulation schemes for e-commerce and placing creating bank accounts or banks. I mean, there's all different types of fraud, right? But we know one of the biggest ones coming out of Southeast Asia is pig butchering and these cryptocurrency investment scams. And if you want to learn a little bit more about that, I would say definitely check out the episodes with Asaf Kipnis, who most recently worked for Facebook in their integrity investigations department and worked on understanding the anatomy of these types of scams. And then a week or two later, I did an episode, a solo episode titled Anatomy of a Scam. And that was actually going through a report that Asaf created based on an experience he had with someone who was trying to target him for pig butchering. And he really reported step by step what was happening and what they were trying to get him to do to try to you know help other people understand it so that they can learn to identify it and not give them any money. But I think that on the downside, this really sucks. And it really is frustrating that Organized crime is seeing so much of an opportunity in this area, and some experts are saying that in just a couple of years, they'll be making more money than they ever did in the drug trade or sex trafficking or anything else. 
On the other hand, we can take a win that, you know, at least some of the leaders of some of the countries involved in this. And I know sometimes it's people who are smuggled out of countries like China, you know, because of slow economic growth due to trying to recover from the COVID pandemic. Other times it's people looking for a better life and they see a job posting on Facebook like these workers did. So sometimes they're smuggled into these countries, sometimes they're from those countries, but that's why I read kind of the numbers of where they were from. But it is encouraging that some of the leaders of you know most of these countries are aware of this and are trying to work on tougher border security and trying to not only prevent this from happening, but to do raids like this, where there are 2,700 more people that are freed from this type of work. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. than there were a week and a half ago. So I always try to end on a positive note, but I really thought that this is an important story because it. I think this is going to be a continuing theme. I think this is going to be something that all of us in fraud need to be aware of. I know that there are some people who listened to previous episodes on this topic that really have a heart for it. And I really, really need to reply to one of your emails soon. I'm just telegraphing that to you in case you're listening. But The other thing is, is, you know, if you want to get more involved and you want to see how your organization can get more involved in trying to identify these people and work towards reducing the impact of human trafficking and all of that, definitely get in touch with The Noble. I've had Ian Mitchell on the podcast before. He's talked a couple of times about what they're working on. Their project Umbra is extremely successful and really was based on a hypothesis of, hey, could we have fraud fighters look at 
these problems and try to identify what they look like on their end for their financial institutions and their companies and try to identify really these cybercrime syndicates and the, the bosses and refer them to law enforcement. And I know that they've had some really good successes on this. So on this, as well as child exploitation and other crimes that happen that may not be considered financial fraud, but still are impacting our society and not the kind of users that your companies or your financial institutions really want on their networks and their platforms. Okay, switching gears here a little bit. I don't think it's a total left turn, but it is switching gears a little bit. Like I said earlier, we've known that fake accounts have been a problem for years, especially for startups, where valuations for businesses essentially that have investors you know, are basing those valuations on the number of total accounts and not the number of verified accounts. I wouldn't even say just looking at active users is good enough because define active. You know, are they active now? Were they active before? How long do they need to be active? Fraud can be active. And I know it's really challenging for online companies to put verification up front for accounts. Banks have requirements for social security numbers or whatever your country's equivalent of that is. Lots of heavy verification. For online companies and platforms, that's not something you can ask for. A lot of times it just requires, you know, an email address, maybe a phone number, a name to set up an account. But there's a lot of repercussions for that, right? It's not just about, oh, we have the, all these fake email addresses that we're sending out marketing emails to, which cost money. It's not just about they're maybe taking up a little bit of room on our server, but hey, we're getting, you know, valued so much higher because we have more accounts. It's also about, you know, how much money is being wasted in so many ways by thinking that you have so many more accounts than you actually do. And it also can really mess up valuation, not just valuations, but forecasting. And you're not getting that average lifetime value the way that you get an actual customer. So it messes up a lot of things. But there is a difference between a legitimate company that has fake accounts on their platform and they might know about it, but it's not, they still have a lot of legitimate users. However, there's a social media app called IRL, which, you know, we all know stands for in real life, that in 2021, which we know if anyone had a startup in 2021, probably got a lot of money and was valued at a lot. That goes for companies in fraud technology space. It goes for companies in fintech and all of them. And then all of a sudden, the second half of 2021 or really, yeah, towards the end of 2021 and beginning of 2022, it was kind of like the... The faucets were all of a sudden turned off. So not even just slowed down a little bit. And I know it's been really challenging for startup founders, those that are legitimate, who are really trying to build something great during this time. But here's the story. So IRL, a social media app that aimed to provide an event organizing alternative for Gen Z, is shutting down after an internal investigation revealed that the majority of its reported 20 million users were either automated or bought. I'm not sure how they identified the difference, but anyway. Despite raising over $200 million in venture capital and receiving a $1.7 billion valuation in 2021, the company faced internal troubles that ultimately led to its demise. The troubles began when IRL laid off around 25 employees, amounting to 25% of its team. So they had about 100, a little over 100 employees and raised $200 million and said that they had 20 million users. So those are 100 employees. Well, I'm sure some of them were in on it, but a big portion of that are people who are assuming that what their company tells them and that they're all working for these 20 million users. And then they realize, oh no, only 5% of that is true. So, oh boy, I already said, I, I already admitted I could not do math. <laughs> but 
I think the fibers out of 20 million would be 1 million. I'm pretty sure that's right. Now I'm just doubting myself because basis points and all that. But, you know, there's a huge difference between having 20 million users and 1 million users. The company faced internal troubles that ultimately led to its demise. Okay, I lost where I was at. So, you know, after they laid off around 25 employees, which came as a surprise considering the significant increase in headcount the year prior, which unfortunately we have seen a lot in the tech world where we saw a lot of companies hiring and hiring and hiring in 2020 and 2021 and even 2022. And then all of a sudden laying off a ton just less than a year later. And that's not fair to the employees, but that's another topic. Former CEO and founder Abraham Shafi encouraged remaining employees to adapt and be disciplined by citing examples such as WhatsApp success with a small team. However, IRL employees started questioning the accuracy of Shaw's claim about the app's user numbers. And the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC in the U.S., launched an investigation into whether IRL violated securities laws. I'm assuming that the laws were, he claimed that there were 95% more users than there really were. As a result, IRL's board of directors suspended Shafi in April and appointed an acting CEO. The investigation by the board found that 95% of the reported 20 million users were automated or bought, leading to the decision to shut down the company. And while the exact amount of money remaining in IRL's bank is unknown, the company stated it would return the rest of its capital to shareholders. So this is just, I, I don't think that the CEO set out to create something fraudulent. It's similar to the company called Frank, which poor Frank McKenna has seen his name in several headlines about fraud, in several headlines about fraud because of the name of that company. But, you know, Chase Bank bought Frank, again, the name of the company that was supposed to be a app or website for Gen Z that helped them with financing for college and some other things. It sounded like a pretty decent business model, but I never really understood how they were getting their revenue. And in this case, that CEO had someone create a spreadsheet of fake users to up the valuation and up how much Chase paid them. And I believe that CEO is under investigation or indictment uh, for fraud. So this is a little different, I think. But another part of this story that isn't included in the summary, but again, there's a really good article on Frank on Fraud about it. One of my favorite resources for fraud stories for the week on Fraudology but I do try to mix it up as well. So, you know, if you subscribe to his newsletter and read his website often, there won't be total overlap. But one part is that there was a whistleblower several months ago, and that kind of caused everything to be shown to light and create that SEC investigation and others. It's something that the topic of whistleblower has come up a lot recently in some of my conversations. So I may be hopefully providing a resource or two on that as I know that a lot of us in the fraud space sometimes come across things that we don't know what to do with or that we think is more serious than it is. So I think it's just, you know, an interesting topic that I think would be helpful for some of us to learn and understand. But I don't think that any whistleblower's intention is to ruin anyone's lives or shut down employees or lay off employees or anything like that. But at the same time, how much more damage could be done. And I will say, I think I did see a headline when IRL was valued at $1.17 billion and they received over $200 million in venture capital in 2021. And I remember thinking, I don't know anyone that uses that. Then again, I'm not Gen Z. I'm more in between Gen X and an elder millennial, as they say. It wouldn't surprise me if it was an app I didn't know about, but that was popular. 
But obviously only like 100 real people were using it. And who knows if they were using it all the time or they just signed up once. All right, the next and last story. And this kind of comes with a bit of a caveat here. So behind the kind of behind the magic of the podcast, in next Tuesday's episode, you'll hear Frank McKenna bring this up because my guests next Tuesday are Frank McKenna from Frank on Fraud and his trusty, I shouldn't even say sidekick, they are both equally partners in anti-crime. Marianne Miller will be on the podcast to do a mid-year check-in on the our combined New Year's predictions that we had at the beginning of 2023. So we already you know, recorded this episode and we shared some things that we were right about, though we wish we weren't. And a couple of surprises and a couple of things that we hadn't thought of, but that have been big in fraud in the last six months. And then we also talked about, you know, what we think is really that the rest of 2023 holds. So at the time of that conversation, I hadn't really heard of this type of scam or fraud. So I thought it was important to not only educate myself, but share this news with you here first before you hear Frank talk about this really concerning trend next week. So the title of this article is COVID Fraud 2.0, check out the new fraud money grab. It's estimated that at least $80 billion in U.S. government funds were obtained through filing fraudulent PPP, Paycheck Protection Program loans, in the U.S. during COVID. That was in the second half of 2020 through, I think, the end of 2021. I'm just going off of my own guesses here. I'm sorry, I did not write that down. A lot of us in fraud think it's a lot more than 80 billion. There was a total of 800 billion provided through the U.S. government through paycheck protection programs, which were to help businesses that were losing, that lost money because of COVID shutdowns. And there are a lot of legitimate businesses that were able to stay afloat because of them. I mean, even Chargelytics had a very, very, very small one, but it helped. I mean, just consider, compared to all of the fraudulent amounts of PPP loans I've found anyways, that's why I say it's very small. Because it was based on legitimate numbers. Go figure. But the estimate of $80 billion is really 10% of $800 billion provided. And most of us in fraud think it was a lot more. I think in the conversations I've had, we're guessing it's probably 30 to 50% of the total amount. There were a lot of failures on the U.S. government side, as well as a lot of people taking advantage of the system and the speed of trying to get the money out for their own gain. And if you didn't listen to the very first time I spoke with Gail Rosenthal, which, oh gosh, was probably towards the beginning of 2021, he worked for one of the companies that was authorized to provide paycheck protection program funds from the government to business owners. And he had a front row seat to it for sure. So that's just kind of a plug there. But so there's no more paycheck protection program. So the thought was that loopholes dried up. There's no more getting tons of funds from the U.S. government the way there was. It's a lot of the reasons why online companies and banks and financial institutions have seen their fraud rates go up because PPP and some unemployment fraud too created a brand new generation of fraudsters and they weren't going to stop just because those funds dried up. So here is a summary of the article. So the Employee Retention Credit, which is called ERC, is a tax credit program for businesses impacted by COVID-19 shutdowns. And it's becoming a target for fraudsters and scammers, giving rise to what is being called Fraud 2.0. Some accounting and tax firms have been accused of submitting fraudulent tax returns to claim pandemic-era stimulus funds. These firms allegedly encouraged businesses, including independent contractors and sole proprietors who were not eligible, 
to convert their businesses into LCs taxed as S corporations in order to qualify for the ERC. These accountants manipulated various factors, such as the number of employees and wages, to fraudulently increase the amount of credits received. Scammers are also exploiting the ERC by making bogus claims and promising large sums of money, often charging upfront fees or taking a percentage of the refund. Victims of these scams may later be held liable for repayment, penalties, and interest if the claims are deemed fraudulent. The IRS has acknowledged the rampant fraud associated with the ERC and has warned taxpayers about misleading advertisements and promotions related to the credit. The agency has increased its audit and criminal investigation efforts in response to the fraudulent claims. So I wanted to add something because there's also a lot of fraudsters that are taking advantage of this too by filing for businesses that don't exist or are kind of creating identity theft for businesses in a way. And I think I mentioned it on the last fraud news episode. There are more business documents needed for loans and other types of things, business entity documents being sold on criminal forums for not that much money because there's a lot more B2B fraud than there ever was before in a lot of ways. And in this case, they're taking advantage of the IRS and a program that was supposed to be fairly small. They have some pretty strict requirements as far as who's eligible for this and everything else. The problem is there are these scammy or kind of fake, I guess they're calling themselves accountants and tax firms that are promising. They're basically making people think that they already, like they pre-qualify, right? That they look them up and they were like, oh, you qualify for this. So something I just wanted to clarify is in Frank's article, as well as just, this is terminology I use too, but sometimes it's kind of confusing. Scammers, at least in this case, are soliciting their services to anyone with a business. So to legitimate business owners, making them think that they pre-qualified for this benefit. They're charging large upfront fees for the filing service, either one large flat fee or a percentage of the amount they file on behalf of the business for. But the true business owner most likely doesn't qualify for the funds or doesn't qualify for as much as the funds because a lot of times these accountants, in quotation marks, are adding employees or making things up that just aren't true for that business. So most likely the true business owner won't receive these funds or especially that amount of funds or they'll have it taken away if they were paid incorrectly. But the scammer company will be long gone so they'll have already paid this fake accounting company a large fee to file these benefits for them. Fraudsters are filing ERC tax credits for fake businesses or they're stealing identity of legitimate businesses. They're filing massive amounts in ERC claims and hope the IRS will pay first and investigate later, as the IRS has in years past with other tax credits like the Earned Income Child Tax Credit and others. So I want to just clarify that because there are two groups taking advantage of this. And in a way, I think fraudsters are obviously bad, right? They're creating fake businesses. They're doing all the things that fraudsters do. For me, what's even more frustrating is these fake accountants that are making it look very, very legitimate. So I know several people who have said that they've received robocalls recently saying that they qualify for this employee retention tax credit. I'm a business owner and I haven't. However, I also don't answer phone numbers that I don't recognize or have saved in my phone. So I may be getting them and not even realizing it. I do think it's really important to point out that there is a CPA, Aaron Schleifstein, on LinkedIn, and this is in Frank McKenna's article, which will be in the show notes for this episode, who posted a really like legitimate looking document that looks like it's from the IRS in the US. And it says, your notice of pending employee retention tax credit. And 
the notice says ERTC estimated refund. And then it says, you know, we're attempting to provide you with, you know, an ERTC refund estimate that has been instituted by Congress to compensate your business losses due to COVID-19 pandemic. Please call us immediately to verify your ERTC refund estimate. It goes on and has like this really big number and everything else. So Aaron Schleifstein is a CPA, certified public accountant in the U.S. And his LinkedIn post said, this notice of impending employee retention tax credit, in quotation marks, in the amount of $390,000 is bogus. My client is ineligible for this credit. And like I said, a lot of businesses are. But they fell for this, thinking that they showed that this showed they were eligible for a tax credit of this amount of money. And they paid really big fees to this company to file for them. And either what's going to happen is they're going to get the money from the IRS, but have to pay it back, or they'll be audited or the money will never come. There's a lot of posts on Telegram and other places saying that it's really easy to create fake ones as well. And that's known as like the ERC sauce on Telegram. Sauce is code for secret sauce, like the method. I did download, or not download, but I viewed a method that someone posted, but it, it wasn't even a method. It was just a copy paste of what the IRS was saying about the ERC. So I don't know what this guy was trying to say. He was selling it. So whatever. I didn't buy it for what it's worth. <laughs> but anyway, the one other thing I wanted to say is that I think is really important. I'm trying to get this. The IRS says it has already paid out $152 billion in refunds associated with this tax credit. And they currently have a backlog of about 800,000 applications that's trying to be processed. The IRS issued a warning last month that tax professionals continue to see a barrage of aggressive broadcast advertising, direct mail solicitations, and online promotions involving the employee retention credit. While the credit is real, aggressive promoters are widely misrepresenting and exaggerating who can qualify for the credits and how much they can qualify. So I think if you work for a bank, obviously you should be on the lookout of these funds being deposited similar to the way that you saw PPP loans deposited, but also it's just good to be aware of whether you're getting those robocalls or you have a family member or a friend who owns a business. Just know that if people who put the amount of businesses that qualify for this, when I looked at all the qualifications, are not as many as uh, are unfortunately feeling like they're being legitimately contacted. And the IRS doesn't help themselves because they actually say to contact you know, one of the one of the participating accountant firms that are working with companies to see if they qualify for ERC. And it's like, well, unless somebody goes to the website, the IRS website to see who those are, anyone can claim it. So, and whether they're scammers or fraudsters, either way, it's not real money and they're not, they're in it for themselves and no one else. And it is really fraud. It's just the two different ways of really classifying it just so we know which ones we're talking about. All right, everyone, that is it for me for fraud news this week. Like I said, Tuesday's episode is going to be really good talking with Frank and Marianne about fraud so far in the last six months. And did our predictions hit? Did they not? There will be some interesting things in there. So and I also start off at the top of the episode with reminding you what those predictions were, not expecting anyone to remember them or have them printed up and posted next to your desk. I'm sure a few of you do, though, because I know I probably would have back in the day when I was an analyst. But with that, I hope that you have a good rest of the week and I look forward to speaking with you more next week.
Thank you again to Spec for sponsoring today's episode. I'm really excited for more online companies to see what's possible with their fraud infrastructure. Spec's Trust Cloud is way more than just another fraud product, and I hope you'll visit www.specprotected, that's S-P-E-C-P-R-O-T-E-C-T-E-D.com to learn why.